0: This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian
1: Church. Thanks for listening. Scripture reading today will be taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 24. Joanne will be leading for us the passage today. You can take this moment to grab your Bibles, or you can follow the passage on the screen.
2: Hi, morning. Uh, for those of us who are using the Blue Bibles, it's on page 1148. one Corinthians 7, verse 1. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift and another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband otherwise your children would be unclean but as it is they are holy but if the unbeliever leaves let it be so the brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances god has called us to live in peace how do you know wife whether you will save your husband or how do you know husband whether you will save your wife nevertheless Each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be uncircumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although, if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's free person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person, as responsible to God, should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Uh, Pastor Nicholas will now speak to us God's word.
0: Good morning, friends. Uh, thank you for joining us today. So this is an important passage. Uh, it's going to be you know, it might be difficult for uh, for us to hear, uh, but you know, let's. Let's listen to what God has to say to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you have to say to us today. In Jesus' name, Amen. My friends, what was sex education like for you when you were in school? Our students cringe when this topic comes up, uh, teachers might fear awkward questions uh, that well, students might ask. Now, sex is awkward to talk about. Uh, our culture is uh, more open sexually, uh, but sometimes sex gets a bad reputation. In this book uh, called iGen, this, the author said something puzzling. He said that well, on one hand, well, people are getting um, more open to the idea of premarital sex, and they have more access to pornography. But yet, on the other hand, statistics show that they are less likely than previous generations to have physical sex. Now, why is that? Why is there this uh, disconnect? She gives many reasons. So, she notices that uh, some people want to pursue their careers and they have no time for sex. Or, people now are more aware of the dangers of STDs. Also, people are People have watched programs that warn against the struggles that teenage pregnancies face. Also, you also notice that people don't want to get emotionally attached, or as like the the modern lingo goes, they don't want to catch feelings. Yeah, so there's a new word for me, but there it is. So they say it's better to stay, stay single and pursue your dreams. And now, friends, this attitude uh, can come into church. Because some people might say that sex, not having sex is better for the kingdom of God. A single person has more time to serve God. Uh, and more, A single person can give more to kingdom work. And that's, that's how some of the Corinthians thought. Now, why, have, why marry when sex is so bad? Now, Corinth was, a, was famous for its sexual immorality. Now, they had this uh, famous temple for the goddess of love, and legend has it that at this temple, uh, they had 1,000 temple prostitutes to serve the community in Corinth. So to be a Corinthian, to be called a Corinthian, means that you were sexually immoral. And that's how some of the Christians thought. That's why they came up with this rule, to say no sex, in chapter 7, verse 1. And now for the matters you wrote about. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. It's spiritually good, that's why you say, not to have sex. Sex is sin. Singleness is godliness. So the godly Christian, if you want to be godly, you must be celibate. No sex for the Christian. Even for married couples. And perhaps these Corinthians will force the married couples, married Christian couples, to divorce, to please God, so that they can be single. So to this, Paul gives gives them a sexual education, a current edition. So, for them, sex in marriage is godly. So, singleness is not the only option. Therefore, live as a believer in your God given situation. Let's look at uh, verses uh, two to seven, one to seven. Sex in marriage is godly. So verses 2 to 4 uh, point out that uh, that, that, that married couples serve one another through sex. So first we look at how it helps them to fight temptation. Verse 2. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have, his, have, should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman with her own husband. Our cultures, uh, the, the, culture, the Corinthian culture's solution to sexual immorality was to they'll give in Uh, to sexual desires with multiple prostitutes and concubines. Give in to your desire. So that's the sexual uh, immorality that's going on. So some Corinthians came up with this solution. The the solution is to be celibate. no sex at all because sex is so bad. But verse 2 says God's solution against sexual immorality is exclusive sex with your own spouse. With your own spouse, not with someone else's spouse. And this tells them fight temptation. Next, we also see that this is their yeah, duty, in verse 3. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. Now, we like to think that well, duty, uh, duty in, the duty between a married couple ends by not sleeping around. But to God, go in our passage here, it's our duty to constantly, regularly offer ourselves to our spouse sexually. Now, duty is a strong word. Duty is like a, a, uh, what the husband owes the wife, what the wife owes the husband. Payments that the spouse requires for the husband, the payment of sex. And that's what we vowed uh, on our wedding day. This is what we, we say in our wedding vows. I give you this ring as a sign of our marriage. With my body, I honour you. With all that I am, I give to you. And all that I have, I share with you. Within the love of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when some of the Corinthians say that sex is bad, they do not let the couple pay the debt uh, that they owe each other. So the couple is forced to break their marriage vows. The Corinthians force the married couple to defraud, to cheat each other of the sex that they owe each other. So there is a duty. Next, authority. Verse 4. The wife does not owe, does not have authority over her own body, but use it to her husband. In the same way, husband does not have authority over his own body, but use it to his wife. Now Corinthians might, might agree that the husband has authority over his wife's body. So sex, they think, is uh, the husband's privilege uh, and pleasure. But for the wife it's her obligation. So the second line in verse four is a surprise, because so it says that the wife has authority over her husband's body. So sex is the wife's privilege and pleasure too. So God's word says to the husband and the wife, the Christian husband and Christian wife, your bodies belong to each other to satisfy your spouse sexually. For their pleasure, but not for your pleasure. And last week in chapter 6 verse 13, we saw that our bodies are for the Lord. Our bodies must serve the Lord Jesus. So flee sexual immorality. And in this passage for the married couples, They serve Jesus, we serve Jesus with our bodies by yielding them to our spouse for their pleasure. But our bodies belong to our spouse, sexually. So if we are to take our our bodies away from our spouse to spend time with our friends, or to work late, or to binge on K-drama, we do need to check with our spouses if they are okay with that. Because they have authority over what we should do with our bodies. Uh, married couples can wrongly use our use our bodies uh, for ourselves uh, rather than for our spouses. We might work longer, uh, work harder, work longer for a promotion, leaving our bodies with no energy, no capacity at home. And we can wrongly use our bodies to lust after someone with our eyes. And we can wrongly seek gratification, sexual gratification, through pornography, masturbation. Now, these things rebel against your spouse's authority over your body. I mean, ultimately, when you rebel against the spouse's authority, you rebel against Christ, whom you serve with your body. Now, some people think uh, sex can be oppressive. He's talking about authority here. It's what the husband demands from the wife, and the wife is obligated to give it to the husband. But this passage doesn't allow uh, the, husband or the, wife, or the husband to be sexually abusive to the, to the wife. See, both husband and wife approach sex as a servant, doing whatever they can to satisfy not themselves, uh, but the spouse. Husbands, uh, your sexual desire is not for you to be fulfilled. Your sexual desire must be directed to your wife. So work hard to be desirable to your wife. Now this might mean being present at home physically, and mentally. Doing the chores voluntarily. Putting down your phone uh, when your wife is talking and listen. And even planning date night. Wives, your sexual desire is not for you to be fulfilled, it's to serve your husband. Now the modern woman is expected to be something like a superwoman. She helps with the, helps with, helps the kids with the schoolwork, cares for her parents and her in-laws, she works regular hours, but she still has time to go for spin class with her friends and even walks the family dog. And she might feel at the end of the day that she has no capacity, no energy uh, for things at home. Now to prepare for this sermon, uh, I read this book. Uh, so it's edited by John Piper and Justin Taylor. So it has different writers uh, addressing different topics related to sex. And this is what a lady recommends to uh, other uh, married ladies. If we struggle with fatigue, let's evaluate our lifestyles. We need to scale back on tasks of less importance. We need to pare down our schedules. We need to take a nap during the day. We need to take, take a shower before lovemaking. We need to vary the time of the day we make love. Granted, this takes some pretty creative planning, but it's vital that we make these changes if we are to anticipate lovemaking. But whatever it is for the husband and the wife, both husband and wife can have a chat about how uh, they like to be served and do their best to serve each other. Because married couples serve each other uh, through sex. Next, in verse 5, Paul gives a concession to pause uh, from sex for special occasions, uh, for special occasions for prayer. Now, we can also pause sex uh, for now, good. Different good reasons today. So, uh, like, if you're recovering from a from a serious illness, you should pause. But Paul also gives us helpfully, some limits on these concessions. But look for me at verse five and six, and see if you can spot these uh, limits. Verse five. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come again, uh, come together again, so that. Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. The first limit is they must have mutual consent. Both husband and wife must agree to this. This is not just one party saying that we're going to abstain. Next, both parties must agree for how long this goes on for, how long this pause goes on. This pause cannot go on indefinitely. And The next next limit is, is that they must return to their sexual relationship so that Satan won't use this prolonged pause of sex to tempt them sexually. Now this is a concession, it's not a command. So married couples are not required to pause sex. Instead, they must have frequent and regular sex so that Satan won't tempt them. Verse 7 shows us that marriage and singleness are God's gracious gifts for service. Now, Corinthians cannot deny sex to a married couple because uh, because marriage is one of God's gracious gifts. So verse 7, I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now, Paul wished that all the Corinthians were single, but he cannot demand it because God has given some to be single and some to be married. This is God's good gift. So the Corinthians cannot deny uh, sex to the married couples. Now, there are a few uh, views on this uh, gift of marriage and gift of singleness. But some say that God gives this gift of singleness to those who don't struggle sexually. And God gives the gift of marriage to those who struggle with self-control and need to be married. I'm not sure if this is the best way to understand this, because uh, what happens to the gift of marriage if the single person... Never marries, never, cannot find anyone suitable. Or how much must I struggle sexually before I hit that threshold to say that I have the gift of marriage? Now it might be easier to see that uh, God gives the gift of marriage uh, to those who enter into marriage. So as Jesus says uh, in Matthew chapter 19, Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave, leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Matthew 19 says that God joins a husband and a wife at marriage. Not before, but at marriage. This is when they receive the gift of marriage. And as we saw in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, this gift of marriage is not for the Christians to enjoy marriage for himself or herself. This gift of marriage is for the husband and wife to serve God by serving his or her spouse, by serving the other. And that's how God, that's, what, that's the purpose of gifts yeah, in 1 Corinthians. It's always to serve others. And before, so before marriage, men and women, they are single. So they have the gift of singleness. And not, for, not as a present to, for them to enjoy singlehood, to pursue their careers and all that, but for, for them to use their time and energies to serve God. And when the spouse passes away, then the surviving spouse has the gift of singleness. But when she, he or she remarries, again, she, he, has the, he or she has the gift of marriage to serve God uh, by serving the new spouse. So what does this passage mean for us? For those of us who are single, you might be wondering, what am I doing here? But this passage is still very relevant because some of us who are single now may be married in the future. But friends, all of us, married or single, can help couples, can encourage couples in their marriages. You see, Paul is single. And this single man is giving us God's word on sex. So everyone, we can encourage married couples from the Bible to grow in their marriage. But we need to do that uh, appropriately and wisely so that you don't get uh, complaints about sexual harassment. Yeah, Uh, that's one thing. But the other thing we we all can do, we consider doing is we can all help to care for uh, the children of married couples. So that couples can spend more time with each other uh, to build a marriage i've heard of uh, these two pairs of christian couples to take turns to care for each other uh, to take t- turns to care for all the kids from both marriages so one week couple a will care for all the kids and next week couple b will care for all the kids so that your couples both couples a and b can take turns to go for dates uh, to spend time with each other to build their marriages now uh, for us uh, here uh, you we do need your help to get to know the kids during morning tea, or maybe we can try to get to know the kids uh, a little bit more during church camp. Now, you don't have to start with the with I don't know the whole the whole duration of morning tea. Just start with five minutes and ask the kids, "What are you going to do during your holidays?" Uh, and then, as the kids trust you more, uh, you can go for your longer stretches. Now, this is not for this is not for you, really. This is to help their parents uh, build their relationship with each other. Because sex in marriage is godly. And because that sex in marriage is godly, so singleness is not the only option. Now Paul gives uh, four options. The first is okay, a single Christian. A single Christian in verses 8 and 9 can remain single Paul can marry then that's what godliness means for the single Christian now, we see what singleness means more next week but what we see here is that singleness is good it's not a curse yeah but if they cannot control themselves they can marry now singles don't have to be celibate as the as the Corinthians say they can marry and for those of, uh, for those of uh, for the Corinthians who are married tells Paul tells them not to divorce verse 10. To the married, I give this command. Not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. Or perhaps some Corinthians thought that your sex is bad and ungodly. so They thought that godliness means that Christians should be celibate. And the way to be, to be extra sure that you are celibate is to divorce from your spouse. This is how you love God single, uh, single-heartedly. But godliness in marriage means... Paul says, no divorce. But this instruction comes from uh, that's what Paul says comes from the Lord Jesus. Not I, but the Lord. And Jesus said this uh, in a passage that he read just now. So they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. No married Christian should should want to divorce a divorce to be more godly. Godliness, Paul says, Means that Christians must remain in their marriages to serve one another. By a fallen world, a divorce might still happen between Christian couples, and when it does, verse eleven and verse eleven says that the couple should remain unmarried so that reconciliation can happen. So that's the second uh, option. The third, the third and fourth option uh, is when the is between a Christian and a non-Christian marriage. Now, let me give a caveat. Now, this, this refers to Christians who, who became Christians after, mari- after marriage. So, this is where so, uh, they, they married when they were still not a Christian. Now, this passage cannot be used to approve of a single Christian considering marriage to a non Christian. It's because if you look a few pages down to, chapter 13, uh, to verse 39, chapter 7, verse 39, uh, this is what Paul says a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies she is married to she is free to marry anyone she wishes but he must belong to the lord so this is an example of a woman who is free to marry she can marry anyone but he must belong to the lord he is he must be a christian so god's instructions to, the, to uh this god's instructions here are not to are uh, Christians who are considering married a non-Christian. No. God's instructions here are for Christians who already are married to non-Christians. And God's instruction is uh, in this, in, from verses 12 uh, to, to 15 is to let the, un- the unbelieving spouse decide. In verse 12, Paul confirms that Jesus didn't say this with his, with his own mouth uh, while he was on earth. But Paul gives us these instructions as Christ's apostle. verse 12. So, Christ is the Lord of the Christian spouse. Now, it will be hard for the non-Christians, the unbelieving spouse, to accept this change. So, verse 12 to 14, uh, the unbelieving spouse decides, is willing to stay with the Christian spouse. And the instruction in verse 12 to 13 is do not divorce them. Now, why is that? The reason is in verse 14. Verse 14. For the unbelieving spouse that has been sanctified but through his wife. And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean. As it is, they are holy. Now this is uh, puzzling. How can the unbelieving spouse become holy through a Christian spouse? Now this doesn't mean that the unbelieving spouse is saved from God's judgment through marriage. You see, verse 16 tells us that the unbelieving spouse is not saved. How do you know that he, he will be saved? And what what is this what verse this verse to mean is this that the Christian spouse will live a godly life at home, so the Christian husband will love and serve uh, his unbelieving wife. The Christian wife will well will submit uh, willingly to her husband, her unbelieving husband, and the unbelieving spouse will enjoy the benefits of having a spouse, uh, having a Christian spouse that submits to God. God's purposes for marriage. And that and the way that the, un, the, the Christian spouse lives actually points to Jesus. So this is what Peter says in, in 1 Peter. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be worn over with, without words by the behavior of their wives when they see purity and reverence of your lives. So the way that the, the, the Christian spouse lives can point their unbelieving spouse, to Jesus. And the children in this marriage have the benefit of having one parent training them to love Jesus at home so that they may be saved too. However, the unbelieving spouse may choose to leave the marriage, may choose be unwilling to stay. Now perhaps the Christian spouse who wants the unbelieving spouse to stop visiting temple prostitutes. Or perhaps the unbelieving spouse cannot stand that the Christian spouse is faithfully following Jesus when you're faithfully meeting other Christians to study God's word. And there are countries today where the unbelieving spouse will threaten the Christian spouse say that to say that he will leave and take the children away unless he stops following Jesus. In these cases, verse 15 tells the Christian spouse to Let them go. The Christian spouse is not uh, bound uh, in this situation. And perhaps, maybe in this case, remarriage is possible. Now some of you in your Bible study groups might have uh, talked about remarriage. Now uh, the Bible doesn't give us uh, detailed uh, conditions for remarriage. We have two concessions on remarriage. So one is here in, in, in this passage. Another is in Matthew chapter 19. Uh, where jesus mentions sexual immorality now re- divorce and remarriage is not a right when the conditions are met but it's a possible concession So even if the concessions are there the marriage doesn't need to end also uh, christians will disagree on the extent of these concessions so it might be uh, better to evaluate each case uh, based on what the, what the situation is. So I cannot give a, a blanket uh, approval of all divorce and uh, remarriage cases. I also see in verses 15 and 16 that there is a chance of salvation. Uh, so in this marriage between the unbeliever and the unbeliever, there is a possibility that the unbeliever might be saved. Now, the way that verse 16 shows us is that it's not a definite promise. But the Christian spouse should keep trusting God to do what's best uh, for the unbelieving spouse. And because sex in marriage is godly, so singleness uh, isn't the only option. Christians can be godly in different states. So What this means for us here is that Christians, we should not despise each other for their marriage states. So the, the, we, no one should despise the single Christians by constantly trying to match them up with other singles. And no one should despise Christian couples for serving less uh, than the singles. And no one should despise Christians married to non-Christians as a sub spirituality. No. And no one should despise Christians whose spouses have left them. Because they can be godly in all their different states. And since marriage, since sex and marriage is godly, then singleness isn't the only option. Therefore, live as a believer in your God given situation. From verse 17 to 24. So in, in this passage, uh, there are a, there's a rule. So this rule is in verse 17, 20, and 24. Now the Corinthians rule is was in chapter seven, verse one. So some people came out of the rule saying, it is not good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman. So they are forcing Christians to change their marital status to please God. Paul's rule is in verse 17, 20, and 24. Verse 17. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Live as a believer in your God-given state, your God-given marital state. There's no need to make changes to their marital state to be more godly. You just need to live live as a believer in that state. So Paul gives uh, two examples to show that we don't need to change our marital state. So first, circumcision. Now some people, some circumcised people wanted to be uh, uncircumcised, and some uncircumcised people wanted to be circumcised. But Paul says that they don't need to make any changes to their circumcision or uncircumcision, because in verse 19, neither for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commands of God. So the mark of of being God's people is no longer Physical circumcision, as it is in the Old Testament. But, keeping the commands. Obedience. Now, why is, it, why is obedience the mark uh, of God's people? Because it shows that God has changed their hearts. And now they want to obey God. They want to respond in obedience. Keeping God's commands shows that you are God's people. Because keeping God's commands is what God's people do. So they don't change their state to please God. But they need to obey God in whatever state they find themselves in. Next, Paul uses a more drastic example to show that God doesn't require a change in marital status. God talks about, so Paul talks about slavery, verse 21 to 23. Now people didn't, didn't want to be slaves then. But they will be forced to sell themselves to slavery if they cannot pay their debts, if they need money to feed their family. So to be free, they need someone to pay their master back. And and people, the slaves, they did want to be free. Paul says in verse 21, Were you a slave when you're called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. So Don't let your status as a slave trouble you. Don't be as obsessed about it. But if if you have an opportunity to be free, do so. Now the poor slave might sit in church beside the rich rich person at church, a rich Christian, so while he's at church, he's wondering and worrying how he can start to be more like the rich Christian, uh, the free Christian. How he can get free. But the slave remembers in verse twenty-two, for the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's free person. Similarly, the one who was free when called a slave is Christ's. The one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You are bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. So the slave believes in Jesus, when that happens, he has been freed from his sins. And the free person sitting beside him believes in Jesus, and he is a slave, a slave to Jesus, his master. So don't be troubled by your status. What matters more is that you have been bought by Christ. And Christ has bought them, uh, at, purchased them at the price of his death on the cross. So Christ is their master, and that is what matters most. Yeah, so live out your ownership in your marital state. But Christians must not be slaves to these human Corinthians who insist that, Christ, that Christian couples must be celibate. Don't be troubled by your marital state. Instead, as verse 17 says, live as a believer in whichever marital state you are in. Now, this passage doesn't mean that Christians should never change their marital and never change their, even their jobs. But this passage reminds us that uh, these changes won't make us more godly. Why? Because what matters is that we live as God's people uh, and keep His commands. And what matters is that we live as Christ's slave and obey Him in true freedom. So sex and marriage is godly, singleness is not the only option, therefore live as a believer in God-given situations. Now friends, over the past two weeks, we have seen a different Forms two different forms uh, of sex education one is from the world and uh, one is from God. Now, sex education of the world has a low view of sex, so that, that's what we saw last week. Last week, I said sex doesn't matter spiritually, have as much as you want with whoever you want, wherever you want, with everyone you want. But this joins, uh, this 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 desecrates uh, the body of Christ that this joins you who are part of the body of Christ, with a prostitute. That's what we saw last week. Or the other view that we saw is today. Sex is bad. Sex is sin. Singleness is godliness. But what this does is, this, this prevents the single Christian who is struggling with sexual, sexual temptations not to, from marrying, from, from, from receiving service from his Christian spouse. And leads him to more temptation. Both these views denies God's good intention for sex within marriage. But the sex education from God in our passage today honors sex in marriage. Sex is spiritually important. Sex is good in marriage. Sex is spiritually important because it helps us fight temptation. Sex is good in marriage because this is what God designed marriage. This design, designed sex to be in. Where sex and marriage is godly, so singleness is not the only option. Therefore, live as a believer in your God given situation. So, friends, for you and I, where is your sexual sex education coming from? From the world or from
1: God? Let's pray.
0: now to the one who by the power and work within us is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or imagine to god be the glory in church and in christ jesus to all generations forever and ever amen
1: thank you pastor nicholas for the sermon Uh, we'll now take some time to reflect and discuss uh, what we have heard today Um, Uh, two questions on the screen so first uh, how can we help unmarried uh, sorry how can we help married couples uh, improve their relationship with each other and second what impact should verse 23 make to my current marital state so you may turn to your closest neighbor uh, maybe take a short five minutes and have a fruitful discussion